Um, as we look at Psalm 24, I want to read a couple of verses here, and then if we could, we can flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Um, for what seems like a while now, um, the theme or the idea of the beauty of God's humility is something that's just been very real and just on fire in my own heart personally. Um, and in Psalm 24, down, um, let's say verse 7, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is the King of glory? He's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Um, I, I would submit and suggest to the house that the Lord is desiring to come in and increase in a fresh way. And for that, um, just for a few moments, however long, uh, I would like to consider the beauty of God's humility. And then coming towards whatever would be a close, uh, I guess you can't open and pray for unusual and then expect things to go usual. <laughs> All right, who said that? It's like, oh. The beauty of God's humility. Um, if we're not careful, the world system, the discipleship agenda of the age that we're in, it conditions us to despise attributes that are incomprehensible in beauty about who God is. Um, if we're not aware, then the world actually trains us to mock and criticize and belittle the very characteristics or the qualities that make God extraordinarily beautiful. And that's even in a limited way to attempt to communicate. Because the idea of God's beauty, right, you have this Isaiah 53 verse 2 passage when he's prophesying about the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53, he, he mentions several things to give a description of the one that would come. Um, it's from 52.13 to 53.12. But in chapter 53, verse 2, he says there was nothing about him. There was no stately form. There was nothing about his physical appearance that would lead us to desire him. Isaiah is considering that God is not beautiful for all of the reasons that the world system around us tends to condition us to believe that beauty looks like a certain thing, right? God is not beautiful. Jesus is not beautiful because he was on the last cover of men's fitness, right? Jesus is not beautiful because he's the next Hollywood spokesperson, billboard, uh, lead figure, dynamic role player, whatever, 
Um, Jesus is not beautiful for any of these reasons. As a matter of fact, Isaiah is saying that he was incredibly ordinary, that in a crowd full of people, there was nothing magnetic about him that would have drawn your attention. There was nothing about his form or appearance that we should desire him. And so if we're not careful, then our hearts end up getting conditioned by the world, its system, and the discipleship agenda through the sway or the current of the world, the pattern of this age. And if we're not aware, then we end up falling in line with what they tell us is supposed to be beautiful. And we actually get discipled to despise some of the very attributes that make God himself extraordinarily beautiful. Right? So, who is this king of glory? Um, I, I would tell you today that God is humble. Right? And, and even, even a statement like that, we, we don't have the necessary appreciation for it. Because in many instances, the world around us is creating a way or a pattern that actually belittles, it mocks, it criticizes things that have been humbled. Right? When we consider something that's been humbled, we consider the world's definition. Right? The world's definition is something that's been lowered in stature, something that has depreciated, something that has lost its value, right? something that is ordinary, it's plain, it possibly has a blemish. Right? You've brought a humbled offering or something of that nature. You think of something that is less than. It's below. It's beneath. Right? This is the idea of humility. When you say, oh, I'm being humbled in this season, right? what you're actually communicating is that there's something happening to me that is lowering my overall idea of value or the way that I realize I'm not able to present myself the way that I would like to. The idea that I've formed about who I want to be, I'm not able to project that. I'm being humbled. Life is humbling me. It's breaking me down. It's belittling me. I'm being crushed through a process. Right, right? This is the worldly association with being humbled. But when I say that God is humble, what I am not saying is that he is depreciating in value. When I say that God is humble, what I am not saying is that he is being lowered in stature. This is not at all what I'm saying. And this is what I mean by if we're not aware of the discipleship agenda that has been launched in the world, the spirit of the age, then we very easily gain traction or get our bearings with certain definitions with the world rather than with what God has revealed of himself and the beauty and the power of the scriptures. Right? Isaiah is telling us that God has made ordinary extraordinarily beautiful. But how many of us have a magnetic pull towards ordinary? In fact, we despise ordinary. Ordinary is something we long to escape. Ordinary is something that we don't want to be associated with nor involve ourselves in on a regular basis, right? But God is very interested in ordinary in an extraordinary way because he's not catering to the definitions of the systems of the world. As a matter of fact, the appeal that he's making to the world is I'm not like you, right? This is what Isaiah would later prophesy out in, in chapter 55, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I'm on a whole other level. I think much higher than you do. 
The, the way that I do things, it's not being fueled or motivated by the same things that move you, inspire you. I am altogether set apart different. Um, the ancient term would be I am holy. Right? I am holy. And whenever they wanted to create a, an emphasis, they would say the same word three times in a row. It would be the way that you would create like an ultimate point. Like, like there's no other way to strongly say what I'm trying to say. So the way that they would say it is they would say the same word three times in a row. You are holy, holy, holy. It would be like receiving that text in all caps with some exclamation points. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I get it. You're, you're really trying to say what you're saying. I imagine you like, you know, yelling on the other side while you're typing. You are holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah reminds us that God is not like us. He is the king of glory. He is the one who is enthroned, right? Ezekiel sees this crystal sea that looks like glass. He sees creatures. He sees a throne. He sees fire pouring forth from the throne. There's the exalted one, the enthroned one, the king of glory. We see in Revelation 4, there's elders and angels and creatures and all the heavenly hosts responding to the worthy one that is seated on the throne. He is majestic. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He rules all things, but he's humble. And when I say humble, what I mean by humble is he is self-sacrificing through radical love and generosity at all times. He is self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial, self-sacrificial. He is always giving of himself, which the polar opposite of that would be self-centered. It would be self-absorbed, right? It would be the self-driven life always thinking of us, only doing what benefits us. It would be leveraging and manipulating all of life to serve our own agenda. But God is not like this because he's not like us. That's what Isaiah says. Recognize, I'm not like you. I am altogether different. Not just in form, but I am altogether different in nature, in substance, in what I actually am and what powers everything I do. I am different than you. And he is self-sacrificing at all times through radical love and generosity. He's always giving of himself in order to serve and better others. In fact, God is the only person, the only being in the entire universe that can be trusted with all power, all authority, and all glory. Why? Because he's constantly wielding all power, all authority, and all glory in order to serve and better others. Right? God is not like into himself. Right? He's not like self-inflated, self-appraisal, this prideful arrogance. Right? This is what John says in 1 John 2. He says, don't love the world or its ways, the lusts of the flesh the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? The pride of life and the self-exalted desire that so many times is associated with the system of the age, right? The system of the age says you are the greatest thing and you are what you are supposed to look out for at all times, right? It says you are great 
and because you're great, you get to do you. Right? That's what the world system says. Right? God says, I know I'm great, and because I'm great, I'm going to give myself to you. And in a self-sacrificing way, I am always going to give of myself with the desire that what I reveal of myself, what I give of myself, what I disclose to you of what I am and who I am, it's actually with the agenda to serve you and not me. Because God is eternal, which means what he is, he is. Right now, now this may sound like super fundamental, but in Revelation 1, right, when when Jesus presents himself to John, he says, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Well, we all realize that's not proper English. You, You wouldn't say that, right? But he is the one who is, which means what he is, he is. Jesus told them before Abraham, I am. I am, meaning I am what I am. Uh, And in fact, he's very secure and very satisfied with what he is. Very much so. Um, Very secure, meaning if you're very secure, that would imply that you're not insecure, right? Um, Because insecure, if we just want to read a real-time definition, insecure would be Subjected to fears, doubts, not self-confident or self-assured. It would be uneasy. It would be anxious. It would be exposed or liable to risk, loss, or danger. It would be not firmly or reliably placed or fastened. This would be insecure. Right? I I believe... I'll just throw the agenda out there in the beginning. I believe that the Lord wants to destroy and deconstruct insecurities in our hearts that resist us from giving ourselves to him in a whole way and giving ourselves to others in a whole way. Um, Insecurities that create walls of resistance and they actually influence and govern the internal conversation that creates hostility from us giving ourselves to the Lord the way that we know he's asking and then giving ourselves to others the way that we know he's asking. Because again, insecurity would be subjected to fears, doubts, not self-confident, not self-assured. It would be not secure, but constantly being exposed or liable to risk, loss, danger, not firmly or reliably placed or fastened. God is none of these things. God is incredibly secure and very satisfied. And not just in an abstract sense with who and what he is. Because what he is, he is. He is. And what he is, he is at all times. And he cannot be something other than what he is. Which means... Your devotional life is not going to make him something other than what he already is. He is eternal. You can't fast and pray to make God something than what he already is. You can't worship for 30 days straight to try to make him something other than what he is. What he is, he is. He is at all times 
what he is. He's very consistent because he's secure, which is why when he reveals himself to John on the Isle of Patmos, he says, I am the one who is and who was and is to come because the is is coming, right? But that's not right language. You would say the one who was and is and will be, right? That's what you would say, but there is nothing for him to be. There's nothing else that he is becoming because he is. And what he is, he is deeply satisfied with being. So much so that he knows what he is and he knows his value and his worth. And because he knows his value and his worth, he does not mind at all times being self-sacrificing. Because he does not need anything from anyone to make up what he feels he's lacking in himself. There's nothing that supplements, that adds to. There's nothing that gives him a greater sense of being satisfied because of an insecurity that's alive on the inside. God is not inviting people to worship him because he's into himself. Right? It's not like, well, you know, I just, I, I need somebody to worship me so that I can have a better day so that I can feel better about the things that I just struggle with on the inside. You know, I, I need people's adoration. I need their attention. I, I need people to adore me because it, it makes up for what I know I'm lacking in myself. God is not lacking, right? Again, he's satisfied, he's secure, which implies he's not insecure. If he were insecure, then possibly the conversation would require him needing certain things in order to fill in the gaps where he knows that there are broken spaces or places on the inside. It would require a certain activity or ingredient to make up for what he knows is missing, but there is nothing missing. And so I would suggest to you that even in the invitation to worship, that God is not ultimately the one that is being served. <laughs> because even when you're worshiping him, he's not changing. Because he is eternal. He is unchanging. He is forever what he is. So then through the invitation to worship, who is the one that is being changed? He invites us to worship because he recognizes that through worship, he's not going to be the one that's changed, but through worship, he can accomplish his agenda, which is to serve and better others. And so in the invitation to worship, it is God's goal to lift up and exalt and transform and make you more like what he's given you to see of himself. It would sound in a simple way like this. I'm going to let you see me because I know that it's actually the best thing I can do for you. Who says this? Jesus does. In Matthew 11:28, 28, he says, come to me. All of you who are weary, all of you who are burdened, all of you who are tired, you're, you're frustrated trying to do it your own way and figure things out, he says, come to me. He says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says, learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle and I'm humble. 
Jesus is the only one that can say he's humble and have it actually be true, right? Who walks around talking about how humble they are? Who, who, who does that, right? Like you would think to yourself, like, did he really just say that? Like, come to me. You need to learn from me because I'm humble, right? And, and I'm humble enough to tell you that the best thing that could possibly happen to you is that I would let you see me more and that you'd be able to look at me and learn from me because I realize I'm the best thing that could happen to you, right? Because I'm humble. I'm humble enough to tell you, right? I'm humble enough to tell you that what's wrong with you is that you're not more like me. And so the best thing that could happen to you is that you would come to me and take my yoke on you, which, which is teaching, right? It's rabbinical language. They would put their yoke on their students. It would be their teaching. And the teaching would come upon their lives, and then they would uh, align their lives, or they would bring their lives into harmony with the rabbi's teaching. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. You need to learn from me because I'm humble. I'm super humble. God is the only one that can handle being worshipped for all time and not be changed by it. Think about this. He's the only thing in the universe and in eternity that can handle 24-7 attention, adoration, the ascribing of worth and value, the giving over of people's affections in a continual way. He's the only thing in the universe that can handle being worshipped at all times and have it not actually change what he is. Man, some of us can't get like a few extra followers on whatever page you've got. And like you can't even like come through the double doors anymore, right? Because like... Like, yo, like, I'm it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've got 100 more subscribers, bro. How many? Like, I, I checked your page. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we can't get a few extra likes. You know what I mean? Without all of a sudden, that's because we weren't made with the capacity to be worshipped. We weren't made with the capacity to handle 24-7 adoration, the pouring forth of affection, the ascribing of glory and value. We weren't made this way. Right? We can't handle it in a minimal way without being absolutely reconfigured. Because it's the pride of life. It's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But God is not this way. He is so secure that he knows the best thing that he could do is give of himself. And he chooses to. He gives of himself. Um, and I would suggest that it's one of the primary reasons that this age as we know it was even formed. is because God longs to be known. He longs to be known. But he also has gone to extraordinary lengths to reveal of himself what he wants others to know. And I would suggest it's one of the primary reasons that this age has been put together. So that God could reveal himself in the person of Jesus. That's number one. Right? Then we understand in a, in a sub point of number one would be so that through the person of Jesus, he could give an ultimate revelation of who he is 
to others. Because we, we use all of these verses that describe power and glory and majesty, but God is humble. And he went to very great lengths in order to set the proper stage to reveal to others just how humble he actually is. Time, creation, powers, and people. God subjected himself to all of that. To time, the God who is eternal has entered into the timeline of history. And he's done it in such an extraordinary way that it cuts the timeline of history into two parts. Right? We have before God came and after. Right? Even the unbelieving world recognizes two parts of the timeline. Because God coming and revealing himself as a man in the person of Jesus is that epic and ultimate of an event. God has come as a man. You're telling me that this uncreated, all-powerful, majestic in every possible way God is going to come to the earth? And he's not just going to come to the earth, but he's going to come in the most humble way. He's going to come as the embryo in the womb of a woman? Have you lost your mind? This all-powerful God is going to subject himself. He is going to be humble enough. The psalmist writes, God humbles himself to step down and gaze upon the things in the heavens. So if God has to humble himself in order to come down and look at the things in the heavens, how much humility is required of this God in order to become an embryo in the womb of a woman? And then not to stop there but to go through the whole pregnancy and developmental process and not to stop there, but to actually come out and to have to be nursed and to not stop there, but to actually have someone teach him how to talk. This is God we are talking about. To have someone follow him around and change his diapers. This is God we are talking about. And for almost 30 years, we get no glimpse of this extraordinary God that has given himself to the beauty of what the rest of us call ordinary. We get one glimpse at Bar Mitzvah age. Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And then he's gone again, back into the ordinary, unseen, behind the scenes, day-to-day -day life. And then he arises. And this is what Paul communicates in Philippians 2. He says, I'm actually praying that all of you would have this mind in you. Think about this. This God who has humbled himself to enter into the timeline of history, but not just to come to flex or to display glory and might, but he displays glory and might according to his own power source. Which again, his power source is the beauty of his humility. He is self-sacrificing at all times through radical love and generosity. At all times. And Paul says, if we start with verse 3, now he's talking to a community of people. So let's hear this as a family. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the heavenly man left the heavens to come and enter into the timeline of history. And he lowered himself. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he lowered himself and he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. God is humble enough to enter into the human story as one of the humans himself. God has entered into the human story as one of the creatures that he himself has formed. God is humble enough to come into the timeline as one of the men that he made from the dust and the dirt. But that's not enough. And being found in appearance as a man, he then too humbled himself. So he has to humble himself to gaze into the heavens. So that's not low enough. So he humbles himself to come into the human timeline. But that's not enough. He comes into the human timeline as one of the creatures that he himself has made. He has formed them and given life to them. He is readying these creatures to be the compatible companion for his son. And he himself has joined himself to serve these creatures by becoming one of them himself. And that's not enough. Even as one of these creatures, he is looking for a lower place to serve. This is mind-boggling. He humbled himself as one of the creatures, as if becoming one of them was not lowly enough. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not just to die, that, that would be humiliating enough for God. We're talking about the uncreated, all-powerful, eternal and majestic in every way God, walking the earth as one of the creatures, as if it wouldn't be humiliating enough for this God to die, period. He is choosing the lowest possible way that he could serve through suffering, even in the type of death that he is choosing to die. And for this reason... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is at all times self-sacrificing through radical love and generosity. He is always wielding power and authority to be pressed into the lowest possible place to serve and better others. This is God. What God would be willing to lower himself to become one of the creatures and as one of the creatures would be constantly looking for the lowest possible place even to lay down his own life willfully and joyfully to be humiliated, embarrassed, mocked, 
beaten, nailed to a tree, naked in the middle of the afternoon, exposed before people and powers in hopes that this radical offering of love would be enough of a witness of himself to provide the necessary means to crack the calloused heart of every rebel, every enemy, and even executioners on that day. What God would be willing to give of himself and to sacrifice of himself in such an abundant way without any type of actual guarantee. God went to incredible lengths to set a stage for him to reveal of himself something that up to that point had not yet had the right context for it to be appreciated the way that he wanted to be known. God had to set a stage in order for him to reveal just how humble he is. And I would suggest it's one of the reasons time, creation, people, and powers even exist. In a fundamental way so that God could reveal himself as a man and then reveal in time and creation, to powers and people, just exactly who he is. But it required a certain process. It required a specific context. He had to have the right setting to put on display just how humble he actually is. I'm going to show you how humble I am. And I understand that from your perspective... You consider this to be humiliating because your idea of who you want me to be is radically opposed to how I actually am and what I am actually willing to do to demonstrate to you exactly who I am. This is humiliating. You're telling me that my God, the Savior of the world, this uncreated, eternal, all-powerful God is hanging on a tree, nailed to a piece of wood, naked, being spat on, being criticized, being mocked, being ridiculed, abandoned, and left for dead. This is who God is? Well, that's humiliating to me with my idea of who I would want God to be. But God is secure. I'll remind you. He's so secure that he understands that what he does does not decrease the value of who he is. <laughs> oh, man. So, so the opposite of this would be when we are insecure and when we really don't know who we are or believe about us what God says we are. Then we have insecurities that are alive on the inside and we're unstable. We're actually dangerous. We're, we're, we're a risk, right? Which is what the definition of insecurity was. And, and the reason that it's potentially dangerous is because we are then unwilling. This is where the resistance comes from. We are unwilling to give ourselves wholly over to the Lord and then especially over to others. Because if we're not giving ourselves first to the Lord, there's no way that we're going to be willing to give ourselves to others. This is the aligning of the two commandments that Jesus said. Love the Lord your God and then love others the same way. Right? Right? This comes out of this. 
right? This has to be right in order for us to give ourselves to this the right way, right? But when we have insecurity that's alive on the inside, then we have to supplement what we lack in belief about ourselves with things that we do. Right, so in John 13, Jesus has a, a, few, a few days left. He's about to hand himself over to the process. We know this because in John 13, 1 through 5, it starts by saying Jesus knows that his day is drawing close. The last moments of him as a free man, and by a free man, I don't mean against his own will. I delight to do my Father's will. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, all the scorning of its shame. Uh, he delighted in fulfilling the will or the agenda of his Father. Right. So in John 13, when it opens, he knows that there's a few days left. It says he knows where he came from. He knows that his Father's given him all power. He knows where he's going back to. He knows that he's responsible for particular people because it says, and those that were given to him, he was faithful and loved them until the end. And then it says, and the devil already having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, right? Like, so, so Jesus is present giving himself to others, loving in an ongoing, self-sacrificing, radically generous way. And in the midst of him living this way in an ongoing way, there's one among them who is still given over to the voice of the enemy. This is kind of hard to digest. Um, but it lets me know, right, that you can be the best possible friend you can love people well. You can give yourself in a sacrificial way. You can be radically generous. You can always seek to serve God's purposes, to serve and better others according to God's agenda. You can fully give yourself over to this. And at times, there are still going to be people that for whatever reason open up their hearts to the voice and the influence of the wicked one. <laughs> and people sell you out, and they betray you, and they talk about you, and they criticize you, they mock you, they reject you, they exile you. Right? But if Jesus' life was set up to include such a person, if the Father did not preserve the life of his son from the inclusion of this type of person, right? And I know all of our worldly organizational, you know, gurus and master megaminds for teams and business and things of that nature, that they would suggest to you, you have to, if we put it into scriptural terms, you have to identify a Judas early so that you can get him before he gets you, right? Or so that you can get rid of him before he gets you. Because the idea is him getting you is a negative thing. But him getting Jesus was the thing that actually facilitated the process of the father's agenda for his own son. Because Judas puts Jesus on the cross and not John. Right? Everybody wants John. He's faithful. He knows about his own life. I'm the one that Jesus loves. Right, he writes it five times in his own gospel. 
It's amazing. For real. No, it's awesome. We, we, all, we all need a revelation. He loves me. He loves me. Right? He says it five times about himself. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. I mean, bro, you're writing about yourself. He's loyal to the end. He puts his head on Jesus' chest. Out of the 12, he's the one at the cross. But John doesn't put Jesus into process the way that Judas does. And Jesus is there, and Judas is in the midst of them, and he knows that his days are coming to a close. He knows he has all power because he knows who he is and he knows whose he is. Right, right? This is what makes us powerful when we know whose we are and we know who we are. He knows he's come from his father, that his father's given him all power and authority, and that he's going back to the same place, right? We would call this security, right? Which, again, is the opposite of insecurity. And Jesus is secure. And because he's secure, verse 4 and 5 tell us that he gets up from the table. Now, again, you have to set the stage. He gets up from the table, and he unclothes himself. Because it's not until you strip it all down that it reveals what actually makes it shine. <laughs> right? Some of us think the shine is in the exterior. Some of us think the shine is in the activities. Some of us think the shine is in the results or the to-do list. But it's not until you strip it all bare that it actually reveals the raw beauty of what actually makes it shine. And he unrobes himself because he's always exposing himself to us. He's always disclosing of himself what he longs for others to know. And he takes on the garments of a servant and he begins to wash feet. Who is this king of glory? In his final moments and days as a free man, he is once again choosing the lowest possible place in order to expose himself and serve in a radically loving and generous way. And because Jesus is secure, he can actually be trusted with every invitation to activity that his father asks of him. Because he's secure... He can do anything. Because he's secure, he doesn't have a demand to only be able to do a certain thing. But he can actually do anything because he is free. Because he understands that his activity is not an assault on his identity. He's free. He understands that what he does does not change who he is. That he is lowly, but it's because he is kingly. And that lowly activity does not actually compromise or belittle or depreciate his kingly nature. He doesn't see his activity as an assault on his identity. The opposite of this would be when we are insecure. We will only look for activities that make up 
or create the idea or the image or generate the opinion in the minds and eyes of others, where in the minds and eyes of others, we need them to think a certain way about us. And so I can only be seen doing something that I want people to be thinking. And so I won't do anything that would belittle me or lower me or embarrass me or potentially humiliate me in front of people because other people's opinions about me are what's actually supplementing what I know I'm lacking on the inside of me. Who is this king of glory that is not catering to your idea of who you want him to be, but can freely give of himself even unto the lowest place of absolute humiliation in order to reveal to us what he wants to be known about himself? This is who I am. Am I embarrassing to you? Am I embarrassing to you? If I am, it's because I'm not like you. And the reason that this is embarrassing to you is because you're not like me. He's the goal. He's the pattern. Our lives are being conformed into the image of Jesus. And so for the idea of the image of Jesus, we have to actually look deeply into the person of Jesus and let what we see in the person of Jesus draw us and pull us and invite us into what it is that God is actually making available to us. Um, Because he's the pattern and because he is the pattern when we behold him. When we worship him, God provides the power for our Passover. He grants us provision for our exodus. Gazing into the humility of God provides all of the power necessary to deconstruct all of the insecurities that may be alive on the inside, which are hostile towards the idea that God is actually like this. Because I don't want to be like this. I don't want to believe that God is like this. Because if God is like this, then his goal is to make me more like this. And everything in me is radically opposed to being like this. Because that's embarrassing. And it's humiliating. But Jesus is free. And so he can serve others in whatever way his father asks him for. He can radically give of himself in an ongoing, loving, and generous way because he's free. And he's not just free to do it for buddies, but buddies and betrayers, (laughs) friends and foes. God hangs in the middle of the afternoon in hopes that the revelation he gives of himself would be enough to provide a witness to enemies, rebels, hostiles, and executioners. This is who I am. And I love you enough to set the right stage, to give an ultimate demonstration of who I actually am. This is who I 
am. And I'm humble enough to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be criticized, to be belittled, to have all of your ideas about who you assumed I was, who you wanted me to be. Again, I'm not like you, and I'm not trying to be more like you. In fact, you are not the goal, and that's what makes it good news. It's good news because God is the goal. And that's why it's good news. Because he's the goal. And he's humble enough in order to go to the lowest possible place to serve and better others. The lowest possible place. You know, I think a lot of times we want power so we can do things for God. We want power to do things for him. But he has provided power for us to become like him. <laughs> but it's easier to be powerful in the things I do for him. <laughs> it's much easier to be powerful in the things I do for him. You don't understand, Mike. Like, um, laying hands on the sick is a lot easier than loving a foe. Washing the feet of a Judas. Sharing a meal in the final moments as a free man with one that you knew was already accusing you and had sold you out. <laughs> to honor him at the table and to expose him, but to honor him by exposing him. Because by exposing him, offering the opportunity for repentance. <laughs> no, you think I don't know, but I do know. You think I don't know, right? This is later in John 13. I'm just going to tell you in advance things that are going to happen so that you guys can all understand that I'm not playing games, right? You're not getting over on me. I knew all along, and I still gave myself to you the way that I did. One of you is going to betray me, and everybody's like, oh, my God, ask John. There's only 12. The odds aren't good. Right? Let's just say there's only 12. The odds are not good. Right? Unless you just believe that, like, Jesus doesn't hear well. <laughs> he's like, no, no, he's off today. It's not going to be one of us. How many of us are willing to receive power from the Lord to press us into lowly and humiliating places so that we can give of ourselves in a radically loving and generous way to serve and better others. Who is this king of glory? Lift up your heads, O ye everlasting doors, and let this king of glory come in. For he is the Lord, strong and mighty, and he's so strong and so mighty, it's because he's secure and he's satisfied and he can constantly give of himself even while being mocked and criticized in humiliating ways because he is free enough in his own value to know that the best thing he could do for us is to continue to give himself this way. <laughs> Come to me and learn from me. Because I'm humble. Um, I would suggest that we are being invited to behold the humility of the Lord. 
to behold the humility of the Lord. And by beholding the humility of the Lord, to be transformed into what God reveals of himself. In gazing upon this God, we want to see you rightly. And in seeing you rightly, meaning we're not forming our own ideas about who we would prefer you to be. We're not creating our own opinions and making you more like us so that we can be satisfied with you. No, no, no. We want to see you rightly. Because God knows the best thing that could happen to you is for him to reveal himself to you. He's humble enough to know that. The best possible thing that I could do for you is to let you see me again. Right? And I get it. At times on our journey, we we reach these places where we have these assumptions about God that need to be corrected. Right? We form these opinions. We have these ideas. Um, Have you ever said something to yourself like, man, God, like, what I'm going through, I I thought you would have done this. That's an assumption. It's an idea. It's an opinion about who God is, and based off of your idea of who you thought he was, the way that you thought he would have involved himself, interacted with a circumstance, or intervened on your behalf. Right? That, that's what we're doing. Man, I thought that this is what you would have done. I thought that this is how you would have come through. I thought that you wouldn't have allowed that to go as long as it did. I thought, right, all of these things, they're assumptions. But how many times have you found that God is quick to rush in to correct and to satisfy our accusations against him? Right? As, you, as you survey your own history, you're going to find probably not ever has God rushed in to say, no, 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 that's not right. I, I don't want you to think about me that way. No, 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 that's not right. I can't let you say those things about me. Why? Because that would be the epitome, the mountaintop of insecurity, where I can't let you think about me or say something about me in a way that I feel is inaccurate. So I've got to rush in and fix every thought you have or every statement that you make because it bothers me more than it bothers you. And I'm bothered that you don't think about me the way that I want to be thought about. I'm moved and I'm bothered and it creates tension in my heart and in my life and it actually governs my whole quality of being when you think something about me that's not in alignment with the way that I want to be thought about. And so I have to fix it. That that would be the mountaintop of insecurity. And as you look through the history, maybe even of your own life, or even the examples that we have in the scriptures, you do not find an example where God is moved by insecurity to say, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, I know you're having a bad day and you said some things about me, but but it's really bothering me. So, So I have to come in and fix it. You have Habakkuk, like, God, where are you? The land is being devastated. I keep crying out injustice, injustice. I don't even feel like you hear me anymore, right? Like you're nowhere to be found. It doesn't even seem like you care that you're involved at all. And God answers him and he says, look again, I'm actually the one that's initiating everything that you're afraid of. Well, that stinks. You have Job, right? Who never gets an explanation. He just gets a revelation of who God is. 
He even at one point says, I wish God were here. Because if he was, I'd put him on the stand. And I'd question him like a man to his face. And I would make him tell me what I did to deserve this. Right? You ever had a Job-type season? Right? You don't have to lift your hand, I guess. I mean... Everybody has been there, right? Job is a picture of humanity, right? Like when you read the book of Job, right? It's why it's dateless. It's timeless, right? It's why Job isn't necessarily attached to a particular time frame and theologians wrestle with when it actually happened. Job is the picture of the human condition, And all of our hostility towards the idea of God's leadership and who he actually chooses to be as he reveals himself to us and interacts with circumstances in creation. And Job says, if you were here, I would make you tell me. You're not going to make God do nothing, first off. Like, Like, we'll just say that. And when God shows up, in chapter 38, he tells him, you asked for this. Now get up on your feet and ready yourself. Because I'm going to question you like a man to your face. This isn't like somebody showing up that owes you money. You know what I mean? Like, like this is not what's happening. Like, God comes in the storm. And he's like, you asked for this. But he doesn't give Job an explanation. He gives him a revelation of who he is. Because he understands he's not necessarily that messed up by all of our inaccurate assumptions about who he is. Because he's secure. He knows his value, he knows his worth. And because he knows his value and his worth, he does not mind consistently, persistently, revealing himself to you in the way that he wants to be known. And in what he reveals about himself, it corrects all of our incorrect assumptions about who we wanted him to be or who we thought he was. God brings correction through revelation. Here I am. Look at me once again. And that day on the tree, he gave the ultimate revelation of himself. And it is very challenging to consider that God is willing to be humiliated before people and powers in order to demonstrate love in a radically generous way. But are we? How many of us are utilizing everything that we know has been put on our lives in order to serve and better others according to the Father's agenda? How many of us are giving ourselves with real power to be pressed into the lowest places among us, constantly searching for lowly opportunities to reveal the glory and the humility of the beauty of God? How many of us long for power to be pushed down instead of to be exalted high? And because he chose the lowest place, his father exalted him to the highest place. Those who humble themselves before the mighty hand of God, he will exalt them and lift them up. Who is this king of glory?
Um, I believe that this afternoon, the Lord wants to deconstruct insecurities in our lives that have created walls of resistance to give ourselves to him the way that he's been asking for and then to give ourselves to others the way that he's been asking for. Um, because as God became a man, we got to watch that man live and the way that man lived, we could now determine what was important to that man as he lived as a man. And he was always exposing himself to find low places to give himself to others, friends and foes. Oh, you love people that are lovable? Praise God. The Gentiles do that too. Friends and foes, buddies and betrayers. How many of us are actually trying to live this way? This is all of us, myself included. How many of us are actually trying to live this way? This is who he is. And I believe the Lord is going to raise up witnesses. Those who are going to give a witness of his love in a self-sacrificing, radically loving and generous way. By receiving power to be freed from the pattern of this age and to be pressed into lowly places. Let me give you the last definition of humility. Um, and then I'm going to ask David to come back. And I'm just going to invite us together to gaze into the beauty of God's humility. And to behold him individually and then together corporately. And may he change us into what he reveals of himself to us. Um, humble. This is going to be super good. We gave the worldly definitions to be insignificant, to be inferior, to be subservient, to be low in rank or importance or status or stature or quality or value, to be low in height or leveling. But humbled is to destroy the independence of something. <laughs> to destroy the power or the will of something. Come to me and learn from me because I'm humble. I delight to do my father's will. My own will has been absolutely destroyed. I'm not all powerful because I'm independent. I'm all powerful because I'm surrendered and I'm subservient in joy to my father's agenda. I have no will or priority of my own. I freely and joyfully Find my food. I have food that you know not of to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus finds his nourishment and his sense of satisfaction by giving himself to his father's agenda in the constant direction of others. To be humbled 
by the Lord would be to have our independence broken. It would be to have the power of our own will destroyed. (laughs) May he humble us to where we can joyfully be subservient to him. That he would raise up self-sacrificing witnesses through radical love and generosity. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us to see the beauty of this man. And that as we see you, Jesus, exalted and enthroned above every other, that you would give us power to be more like you. Set us free from all of the insecurity that's alive on the inside. This fleshly nature of ours that is hostile towards being humiliated, being humbled, being exposed, being embarrassed, to where the image that we long to prop up and to keep alive gets deconstructed. And it's what embarrasses us because we can't present ourselves the way that we would want to be thought of. We can't be seen doing the things that we feel make us important. Lord, humble us if you must. And I pray, touch Deep on the inside, what is powering this conversation? Touch deep on the inside, what is motivating or fueling all of the things that other people see and interact with? Lord, touch us deep on the inside and give grace where we can be set free from the hostility and the captivity of this insecure, self-absorbed, focused on our own agenda-driven life. Raise up a beautiful people that are powerful, that are free, that know whose they are, that know who they are, that know their value and their worth, and because they understand that there's nothing that they could ever be invited to do that would actually change who and what they are, are willing to receive grace and power to be pressed into the lowly places among friends and foes, to be subservient willfully and joyfully, to be exposed and humiliated, to give a witness of this King of glory and his love for others. We need real help because there's nothing in us that wants to do this naturally. Who is this king of glory? Let this king of glory come in. And may you be strong and mighty in the midst of your people.
I'm asking you, Lord, to touch us deeply and set us free. Set us free. We want to give ourselves to you and then set us free to give ourselves to others. Give grace, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're always setting the stage to reveal the beauty of your humility. May we not shy and shrink back because we would be humiliated at the idea of presenting ourselves, giving ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for breaking the resistance that is in our independence. Love us into submission. <laughs> and I thank you, Lord, that there's nothing greater that cracks the calloused hostility in our hearts than once again being privileged to gaze upon the beauty of your humility. May your humility destroy every ounce of insecurity where we can give ourselves with radical abandon. We are yours, and it's because you are ours. I'm just going to invite us together just to gaze to behold, to set our sights on the beauty of God's humility. And may he pull us into what he privileges us to see of himself. Come in, King of glory. Come in, King of glory. Come in and be yourself. We're not embarrassed of you. We long to know you, and it's because you long to be known. Come in, come in, come in, come in, come in. Come in, come in, come in, come in. Come in.